Scripture today comes from Luke chapter 19. Bulletin says I'm going to start in verse 11, but I'm not. I'm going to read right from the beginning of the chapter because I think the context here is important. So Luke 19, verse 1. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see Jesus, to to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Or as many of us learned, he was a wee little man. So he ran on ahead climbed up a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Or minus, I have no idea how to say this. Um, some, parable, some translations say pounds here. We might say that a little bit more. And said to, him, and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in the little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you, put, did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minutes. 
And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minutes. I tell you that everyone who has, to, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Here ends the reading of God's word. There's three contextual markers that you've got to get if you want to understand this parable. Three things going on in the context of Luke you've got to be picking up on. First of all, it follows the story of Zacchaeus. And the wording is very clear. It, it links up with what's going on in Zacchaeus. So, so what's going on in Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is this little guy, little in stature, but not in importance. He's the head tax collector. What it means is he works for the Roman government collecting taxes from the Jews. They were known to be a little bit dishonest, but, but not always. Probably less dishonest than the reputation was. The real problem was they worked for the enemy government. Right? They had sold out to make a profit on the ones who were abusing the people. So he's little, he gets up in the tree. We kind of all remember this story from Sunday school, right? And Jesus says, come on down, I'm going to your house today. But then you get this next paragraph that we, you don't talk about as much in Sunday school, which is where all those people who are walking around with Jesus start grumbling, saying he's going to go eat with this guy who's a sinner. This guy works for the enemy government. He shouldn't be eating with this guy. But what has Jesus said? He says, salvation has come to this house. He says, my purpose was to seek and to save the lost. And in the middle of this, Zacchaeus confesses that he's not been great, but he vows here that he's going to behave differently, right? Half of his goods he's going to give to the poor. Or um, the, the real translation here seems to say that he's already doing that. I'm giving it to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So if he cheated anybody, he's going to give them back fourfold what he cheated them. Zacchaeus is going through this life change right now. Everybody see this dramatic life change? But even though he's going through this life change, the people are still upset that Jesus is eating with this sinner. Even though Zacchaeus is moving from sinner to something else. The second thing you've got to understand, besides the story of Zacchaeus, is the location that's going on here. Okay, In the Gospel of Luke, there's this distinct move that Jesus has for a lot of the gospel towards Jerusalem. So Luke keeps saying he's on his way to Jerusalem. He says it there uh, in verse 11 because he's near Jerusalem. He marks it. He marks that he's in Jericho, which is on the way to Jerusalem. A lot of the gospel is, is going to Jerusalem. What's happening in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus is going to die there. And he's heading there. He's heading in that direction. And so you've got to understand this is right before he gets there. Okay, if you keep reading in Luke, you're going to find the triumphal entry and all the stuff we celebrate and talk about Easter week is happening right now. He's there. He's on the doorstep of Jerusalem as he tells this story. The third marker here is, is very specific and it comes in verse 11. They're hearing these things. So he tells this parable and, and Luke gives us why. Because he was near to Jerusalem, right? He's about to come in and do what he's come to do. But they supposed that the kingdom of God was coming immediately. So at least some in the crowd think Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to be king. He's going to take it over. 
And they're primed for that, right? Because Jews from all over the country are also coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Is this going to be the kingdom? Are we going to finally have the Messiah that kicks the Romans out? Are we going to finally have a ruler in the line of David to rule over us? But Jesus isn't leaving that kind of kingdom. In fact, he's not even going to have his kingdom right now. He tells the parable because he's going to leave and come back and get the kingdom later. And he's trying to help them understand that with this parable. So with that context in mind, let's think through the story. A nobleman goes to a faraway land to receive a kingdom. Now that sounds really strange to us. But in Jesus' day, this exact thing has happened at least twice that we know of. Two different people named Herod, Herod and one of his uh, sons, had gone to Rome where they had had jurisdiction over Jerusalem and Israel in this area. And he goes to Rome, both of these Herods, in order to to petition the, the Roman Empire to let them be king over Israel. Okay, so this has happened twice in Jesus' time. Okay, and one Herod went and got his kingdom and came back. This is the Herod that Jesus has a lot of trouble with. But the other Herod goes to get a kingdom and he comes back empty handed. The Roman Empire has had it with the Herods and Herod doesn't get to be king. Now when this happens, it throws the whole economy, the whole system into chaos, right? Because you don't know if the person that leaves is going to get the kingdom or not. In fact, in both cases, the Jewish people had done exactly what the parable says and sent delegations to tell the Roman Empire, we do not want this Herod ruling over us. At one time, they got him anyway, and the other time, their warning was heeded, and the Herod did not get the kingdom. So Jesus tells this story... And it is contextually right where the people are. They've seen this before. Okay. And he's telling this on purpose. Luke gives us the message of the parable ahead of time, the context of the parable ahead of time. Jesus is not going to inaugurate his kingdom right now. He's going to leave and he's going to go get it. He's going to have to return to heaven first before he inaugurates his rule on the earth. And they think it's going to happen right away. And we, 2,000 years later, know, no, it's not. This period of waiting is actually going to be a long time. And you know what? There's going to be a lot of people who don't want him to rule over them. And that's the way a lot of people are in our world. We, have, we don't want God. We don't want God. We'd rather not have a God. We don't want anybody to rule over us. We want to rule ourselves. So, the nobleman goes away. But before he does, he calls ten of his servants together. And he gives each of them a pound or a minna, however you want to say that. And we're not quite sure exactly how much that was worth. But it's generally about three months wages. So it's not an insignificant amount of money. Three months pay for a normal good worker. And so he gives each of the ten one of these pounds or or a bag of whatever this is and says, do business. When I come back, uh, we'll see what you have done. So he goes away, goes to the far off kingdom. 
Now, you've got to understand the difficulty that these servants have. Okay, we know from the story that whoever this ruler is, the people don't like him. Okay, he's not wanted. They send a delegation all the way, presumably to Rome, to, to make sure that he does not come back as king. Let me ask you a question. How would you like to do business on behalf of the ruler nobody wants? You're taking great personal risk. Furthermore, you don't know if he's going to come back with that kingdom or not. Remember, one Herod had, one Herod had not. So probably a whole bunch of people weren't doing a lot of business. They were hanging on to their money, waiting to see if that ruler was going to come back that they didn't like or not. There's not a lot of risk taking, which means the market is slow, which means it's going to be hard to make your money. So it's hard for them to make money, hard for them to stake their reputation on a ruler that nobody wants, a ruler that might not be king. You're trusting if you're going to do business in the name of this, this nobleman. You're trusting that they're going to return, trusting that they're going to come back, trusting that they're going to be king. And so he does return. He returns with his kingdom in hand. He is now the boss, the ruler. He's got the authority. And he brings in the ten servants. And the first one comes before him. And that one minute, that one pound is suddenly ten. A thousand percent return on investment from this person in the middle of a tough economy. This person has really taken some risk with what he has been called to steward. The reward... Because he was faithful in this amount of money, he gets to rule over ten cities. He gets to govern ten cities on behalf of the king. Now listen, just because you can make money doesn't mean you can rule cities. That's a little bit of a jump, right? Because you've made me some money, now I'm going to let you rule over ten kingdoms. Ten, ten cities. Ugh. Not sure that's a reward I would want. That's sort of a... a a promotion that you're not quite excited about, right? That's a lot more responsibility. The second one comes, says, Here's, here you gave me a minna and I, I made five minas. 500% return on investment. Well done. You get five cities to govern. Not sure I want five cities to govern, but there it is. Third servant comes before and he has put the minna in a handkerchief presumably buried it in the tent or hid it somewhere in his house to make sure he didn't lose it. Well, that's good, right? He didn't lose the money. But that wasn't the expectation of the nobleman, was it? Probably a lot of people had hidden their money. Probably a lot of people were just hanging on to it. But that's not what the king wanted. The king wanted him to go out and he says, Look, king, nobleman, now i got to call you king. I know that you're severe, you're harsh. You want a lot in return. And I was scared. And the nobleman says, you've condemned yourself. You knew I was severe and still you hid what I gave you to steward. At least if you'd put it in the bank, I'd make a little bit of interest. But you didn't even do that. You know what that means? In the bank is easy. What it means is that this person didn't trust he was coming back for the kingdom. What it really means, he didn't trust the return of the king. He was hedging his bet, and he didn't want to, out in public, be known as a person that works for that king. So he takes away the, the minna from the person, 
and gives it to the one who has ten. At which point, some people in the crowd say, what are you doing? He already has ten minutes. And the nobleman, in Jesus' words, say, if you're going to be faithful in a little bit, you're going to get more. But if you're not faithful in a little bit, even what little bit you have is going to get taken away. And then there's these terribly harsh words that these enemies of mine, the ones who didn't want to reign, me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. With this, Luke's gospel transitions. Jesus goes on to Jerusalem, entering on the back of a donkey and eventually heads to his cross. What are we to make of this story? Well, there's one important detail. One important detail that, that once I saw it, drove me nuts all week as I studied this parable. And I think it's the real key to understanding what we should do with the parable. It should be obvious, but it took me a little while, and maybe it's taking you a little bit too. How many servants do we have that get each a minute? Ten. How many servants do we hear from in the parable? Three. We only hear from three of the ten servants. Where are the other seven? What happened to these servants? This parable, by the way, is very similar to a parable in Matthew um, called the parable of the talents. Probably you're more familiar with that one. And in that one, Jesus does have three. He's got three stewards, three servants. He comes back and asks the three what they did. But in this one, there's ten servants. What happened to the other seven? I wonder if there are these other seven because you and I are the other seven. I mean, imagine in the parable, you're guy number four. Okay? Imagine you're number four in line. First person gets this great reward because he got this great return on the investment. Second person gets a good reward because he got a good return on the investment. Third one gets stripped of what he has. And then there's an order to bring in those who are against the king to have them slaughtered right in front of them. And then it's your turn. Right? What have you done with what God has given you to steward? I think that's our big question in the parable. Because Jesus has left. He's left to go to heaven to receive his kingdom. And he has made you and I stewards of things in our lives. He's given us jobs. He's given us money. He's given us family. He's given us friends. He's given us our churches. And Jesus says to us, go do business. And when I return, we'll see what's happened. And Jesus is demanding. He expects a lot out of us. He expects us to do things with, with what He has given us to steward. But oftentimes we think of it as ours. It's our job. It's my money. It's my family. And Jesus says, no. It's His. You're stewarding it. And are you developing it? Do you trust Him? Do you trust He's really coming back? I mean, really. If Jesus came back tomorrow... Would you be terrified to give an account of what you've done with what he's given you? Christians ought to be the best employees, 
The best bosses, the best spouses, the best parents, the best neighbors. Because we should see everything we have as something we're cultivating to give further glory to God. God has high expectations. And you know what? If we're faithful in a little bit, often the expectations raise. And he gives us more to work with. Steward a little bit and you may find yourself having to really lead and steward lots of things. I wonder if sometimes if we are timid as Christians because there really is resistance. We really do live in a world that does not want God to reign over us. And if we position ourselves as the one who serves that God, there may be some expectations on us. We may lose some credibility in the community. We're one of those Christians, one of those Jesus freaks. I think we have a Christianity today that is too timid and complacent. We work to fly under the radar, not to offend anyone, not to get labeled. We keep our personal views out of our public life. But if the story of Jesus is true, and He did come back tomorrow, and He is King, then all our posturing and political correctness is going to look very, very foolish. Someday I believe I'm going to stand before God and have to answer for my life. Believe me, as a pastor, I take that very seriously because I'm going to have to answer not only for my life and not only as a, as a father am I going to have to answer for my household, but I'm going to have to answer for you all too. You too will stand before God someday and answer for the things that have been put under your care. Did you lead your family in a way that equipped them to find and follow God's will? Did you have friendships where you added strength and grace to others? Did you go to work every day and try to bring God praise in how hard you worked and what you produced? Did you steward your money in a way that was wise so that you could be as generous as possible? Did you make your church a place where people could be cared for and where God was glorified? Did you take care of your body as if it really was a temple? Did you develop your gifts, your passions, your ability? Or did you wrap them in a handkerchief and not let anybody know what you really liked to do, what you really cared about, what you were really passionate about? If God gave you a heart for something in this world, did you cultivate that into action? The American church has been in a very comfortable place because America has been a place of privilege where where Christianity was really the dominant voice. But that is changing and I think continues to change. The world of tomorrow will demand a more resolute and devoted church. It will require Christians to take seriously the holy task of stewarding their lives. And I think for some of us, and for some of our churches, this is going to be very jarring. You and I are the seven stewards. What will we say when we are questioned? Or I wonder if some of those stewards were actually in the ones who did not want the king to rule over them. Maybe a couple of those stewards took off in the delegation, pocketed their menace and said, it's mine, and said, no, I don't want God. I don't have anything to do with this God. Is that you today? Or did you bury your gifts? The bad news is God can be hard. He can be severe. He has high expectations of His people, and we have to work at things. There will be a slaughter, says the Scriptures, where the enemies of God will stand no more. But here is the good news. The good news is like Zacchaeus, we can make a change. 
We can do it different. We can make it up. God might be hard, but He's also graceful. He's also beckoning you. Be a good steward now. Let's pray. Father God, I the Scripture of stewardship. And I pray that as we live our lives, as we go to work this week, as we play with our grandchildren, as we do all the things that we do, we would see it as holy work. We would develop and take care of those things you put in our charge so that when you do return, you will receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.